0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker with me, Dorian Linsky. This week, it's grim up north, or at least it is now that Greater Manchester and parts of Lancashire and Yorkshire are back under lockdown. Have the government pushed the reopening too far, too fast? And will the rest of the country have to brace itself for similar restrictions in weeks to come? Plus, as Boris Johnson appoints Brexiteers... Corbyn critics and even his own brother to the House of Lords, is it time for the Second Chamber to be properly overhauled? And after a year in government, where are next for the new look Conservative Party. Former Conservative MP and Cabinet Minister David Gork joins us to look at where Project Boris has taken the party and if we'll ever see One Nation Toryism again. All this and more in today's bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Before we take a look at the holiday brochures and organise our quarantine plans, let's meet today's panel. First up, we have editor of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hey, man. Not too bad. Thanks. So uh, the columnist Sarah Vine tweeted over the weekend that if she died from COVID, so be it, and she didn't expect the nation to bankrupt itself to <laughs> save her. Do you expect this bold pro-death position to catch on?
1: <laughs> the way of the samurai. Um, no, I can't. Oh, my God. Like, Is it? I think this is where I am. It's again. There's no point in thinking about the politics of it. I just sort of think about like the psychology. Is it just like? An, is, is it just impossible for certain people to understand that other human beings exist? Like it's been months of this now, and the point is not just your own safety. The point is also that this is something that you can spread to other people. It's not like a complicated idea, and yet for some reason, over and over. You find people popping up with this, with this sort of take on it. It just makes you think you literally cannot conceive of the fact that you have a moral obligation to other human beings. It seems completely beyond. But it's like saying, like, oh, "Well, I'm going to drive drunk.
0: If I die, I die. So
1: be it. <laughs> it
0: I'm going to die laughing." And it's like, "Yeah, but there's other people on the road."
1: <laughs> so no, I mean, look. The plus point is, it is not a majority view. Like you know, as much as you see this sort of from journalists. it's predominantly and weirdly it is it does seem to be sort of right-wing journalists um it's not catching on like it's not getting on it when you look at the polling that is not how people think about this stuff and actually you know this is one of those issues where the british public seems to be far far more sanguine and intelligent than the people writing for mid-market tabloids
0: (laughs) which is refreshing also joining us is comedian writer editor of the londoner diary in the evening standard and times radio host aisha hazarika hi Aisha. how are you
2: I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm well.
0: Um, in other controversy news, uh, Conservative MP Craig Whittaker came under fire for saying that BAME communities were the ones not taking COVID seriously enough. If you're just straight up blaming of people of colour and not white people on beaches, does it even count as a dog whistle? What, what kind of whistle is that? <laughs>
2: Um, well, I was thinking it was it was only a matter of time. I felt like we Muslims hadn't been blamed for anything for quite a long time. So I just felt like it was it was time. It was just our time. And, you know, we just got to like – I mean, I did I, – I was quite taken aback by that, um, particularly because it was the long trip to Barnard Castle for the site test, which really kicked a lot of this off. And unless Dominic Cummings has secretly converted to Islam, I just thought it was a bit ridiculous. I did actually speak on my show last week to uh, one of the local MPs, MPs and a local councillor in from you know right in the hotspot, and I think what was what I was really struck by was that none of them were saying, and they're very, very embedded in the local Muslim community, none of them were saying, look, you know, we're pushing back against this, we're going to refuse to do it. You know, they will follow the advice because they, you know, guess what, Muslims people are like other people, they care about, you know, their health and they care about society. But what was really upsetting for them was the fact that it was done so last minute, there would have been a bit more notice that the government would have had. And and Eid is like, it's like christmas and you know if you are from a muslim family your mum starts cooking like 3 days before it's like sort of a sort of 3 day marathon of cooking it's quite expensive people spend a lot of money getting ready for people to come to their house to host people so i just felt like it was really insensitive and i think those communities just felt quite Hurt. They felt like they had been really disregarded because, and they felt they, didn't, they weren't understood and there's a lot of truth in that.
0: Well, we'll talk uh, more later about uh, reopening and reclosing. Uh, but first, this week's special guest is Theresa May's former Justice Secretary, DWP Secretary and Chief Secretary to the Treasury. During last year's parliamentary Brexit wars, he became the figurehead of the aptly named Gorkwood Squad. As MP for South West Hertfordshire, he was one of 21 Conservative MPs to lose the whip before the elections. Now he's in the outside world, where at last he can say, all views my own. Welcome to the bunker, David Gork. How are you? I'm
3: very well, thank you very much, Dorian.
0: So on the same day last week, you published a very good piece on Conservative Home about state aid rules and launched a Twitter poll asking whether a hot dog qualifies as a sandwich. Are you enjoying post-Westminster life, where you can just, (laughs) you can do both of these things?
3: It's great, isn't it? I know. Although there was no, never really a strict restriction on asking about hot dogs when I was a member of Parliament. Um, I think it, would have, it might have been difficult as a cabinet minister. I think there might have been a collective responsibility point on whether a hot dog is a sandwich or not. Um, uh, uh, but but yes, yeah, so that, that's the joy of Twitter, isn't it? You can get into these. Um, you can go where you want to go.
2: And what was the result?
3: The result was overwhelmingly of the view that a uh, hot dog is not a sandwich. Right, um, which which it goes against the the the, the majority view in the Gork household <laughs> that that a sixty percent support for for it being a, a a sandwich, which is which is where I go just on the definition of a sandwich i know it doesn't feel like it but you know textual analysis i i i think let's see if we can work with what the people have gone for but you know let's <laughs> let if, if if it's not workable then, then maybe i'll do another twitter poll <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, like some of your colleagues who lost the tory whip over brexit you chose to stand as an independent in december rather than sort of retire um or switch to lib dems um obviously bit of an uphill battle what was it like sort of fighting a, a battle that you, you know that was unwinnable um and, and why did you why did you choose to go out that way i chose to
3: to go out that way i look it was always you know very much a long shot of of, of you know of of winning um and i didn't have any uh, illusions about that but i thought i'd give it give it my best shots. i did consider about switching to the liberal democrats but i concluded that i'm not a liberal democrat and, and that was <laughs> that's a good enough reason to, <laughs> to not become a liberal democrat um and, and i don't think it would particularly have, have have helped my my cause but i look i didn't want to just you know have a decision made that's it and that's the end of the sort of political career and you sort of quietly walk away and go oh well never mind Yeah, you know, i felt strongly that the country was taking the wrong direction i wanted to do something about it and and in truth um the six seven weeks or whatever of the campaign it was terrific fun i mean you know i've really enjoyed myself and that's not the purpose of doing it but as it, as it happens you know being an underdog pulling together a team i had some really lovely people who some of whom i'd known before some of whom i'd never met before who got involved and you know we had a great Team effort, and you know, he was able to make the case on sh- social media and on the doorstep and in the high streets and at the train stations and so on. Uh, people were by and large, you know, extremely kind and um, you know, encouraging, and it, it was great. I mean, until obviously the votes were cast, then that was different, but once once the votes were starting to be counted then then the the, the sort of novelty wore off a little bit
0: but <laughs> <The> voters <laughs> always ruin
3: things <laughs> they did they didn't did get not enough of them got into the spirit of the campaign in my view <laughs>
1: um,
3: but but you know 14,000 of them did which as an independent is a pretty <clears throat> good effort <clears throat> and yeah i felt you know better to go down with a bang rather than a, with a whimper and i certainly don't regret it it was a period i look back on actually fondly and you know i was making a case i really believed in and and you know enjoying it
0: firstly it's time for the handbrake and reverse gear on the grand covid reopening last week the government imposed last minute local lockdowns in greater manchester east lancashire and parts of west yorkshire and cancelled planned reopening for casinos bowling alleys and ice rinks A major incident was declared in Greater Manchester on Monday. The area now accounts for a third of the 20 worst affected local authority areas for infections. Meanwhile, Dr David Navarro from the World Health Organization says London is facing a critical time as infection rates seem moderate so far increases. And in Children of Men news, the Times reported that Boris Johnson was considering using the M25 as a quarantine barrier to seal London off from the rest of the country. Aisha, do you think that that what's happening now is is proof that the government reopened the economy too quickly that perhaps they should have sort of staggered the measures over a, a longer period of time would this have would this happen anyway
2: I think this probably would have happened anyway I think whenever we came out of because we had quite a strict lockdown. So I think when we came out of it, there was bound to be some kind of, of spike. And I look, I have been very critical of, of the government in terms of how they've handled it. But I think the balance between the um, the public health crisis and the looming economic crisis is really, really tough. You can't really separate the two and the two very much sort of bleed into into each other. I think one of the things, though, that they have, so I think everybody from a policy point of view, I think it's quite churlish to sort of just say, oh, well, you know, it'd be really easy to do something. None of this stuff is easy. But where I think there is really legitimate criticism is over how this is all being communicated, because the communication strategy is as important as the sort of health advice and the kind of policy side of things. And I think the mistake they made is that they, you know, just four weeks ago, that Super Saturday was like, Super Saturday, Independence Day, da, da 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 And I think they kind of G'd everybody up to get sort of so excited. And I think that was probably a mistake. I think the, the messaging from the beginning should have been we are going to try and open things up. We do want to try and get the economy moving. We do want to try and resume some kind of new normal. But we have to take baby steps. I think that's a problem. We, kind of, we keep getting told to sort of go, go, go. And then we get told actually over 50s might have to go into hiding. So the, the messaging is very, very mixed. And I think that's confusing people. And I'm very upset. You mentioned uh, bowling alleys and ice rinks. What about the pure poor beauticians around the country because that is a really important sector. A lot of women, a lot of young women work in that sector and I'm very upset because I have now had my facial cancelled and I have some very unexfoliated skin in the game and my eyebrows are starting to resemble Dennis Healy. So I'm very personally <laughs> very upset. I feel very like targeted. person as, as a Muslim with very hairy eyebrows, I feel very targeted. It's <laughs> <That's> a bad <laughs> week. <laughs>
0: um, um, you mentioned there that Number 10's nuclear option of getting the over 50s to stay home, which was sort of hastily dropped as a predictable outcry in press and also in cabinet. Um, I mean, if we're talking about the comms here, do you think the government was seriously floating it as an idea and just seeing if if people went, you know, if people had gone, oh, all right, then sounds fair, that uh, they'd they pressed ahead? Because it seems like such a, a an obviously um, drastic and unpopular measure to float.
2: So I think... What's I think what's happening is a, a sort of a style of communication where they will float an idea normally in like a Sunday paper, then they'll sort of focus group it in real time and get a response, a really bad response in this one. And then they go, Oh no, no, this was never I don't know where this idea came from, I just don't know who briefed this out, we were never going to sort of think about it. And you know, okay, and, or, 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 or you know, having been an advisor, that's a, it's a it's a pretty crude way of doing kind of focus group testing. It sort of saves you doing a huge U turn down the track, but it's not great for messaging. It's not great for um, confidence and trust in the message because people did get very upset at the weekend seeing this. You know, I had Baroness Rose Altman on my Show and Times radio. I had you know, we had so many um, of our listeners sort of messaging in, in saying this is absolutely outrageous. You know, I'm going to be prepared to go to prison if this is... So, you know, it's it's a not a good way of, of governing. As I say, none of this is easy. I don't think anybody, you know, I don't think anybody can say, oh, well, you know, I could do a much better job. This stuff is really, really hard. But they're making it more difficult by just sending these kind of flare guns of sort of crazy ideas left, right and centre. And that's why everybody is so confused right now about what is allowed and what is not allowed.
0: David Cook, some of the uh, the people uh, responsible for handling this crisis, of course, your your former colleagues. Um, what's your impression of how the government has handled it so far? I mean, I know there's been lots of sort of different phases. Maybe I mean, there's a lot of smaller questions inside that big one, but but overall, I agree
3: with a lot of what Aisha has just said. Actually, I think in terms of yeah, first of all, this is the most enormous challenge. I mean, this is absolutely all consuming enormous tasks secondly that the choices available all of them are difficult all of them have got significant downsides i have some sympathy for the the substance of what the government has has tried to do at, at, at various points but i think where they've gone wrong is has been on communication and i think there's been too too many occasions where the prime minister, in particular, I think, has been keen to deliver good news and say, "You know, let, I've got something to cheer you all up." Unfortunately, after either a long period or sometimes even quite a short period, turns out to be not the case. And I, I think, yeah, you know, I, I don't. One, I, I think that undermines trust. Um, secondly, I don't think it's particularly effective because it undermines trust by which I mean is if you want to get people sort of behaving normally, if you want to get the economy moving, fundamentally people need to be reassured that it's healthy to do so you know what's stopping people going to to pubs and restaurants and so on is not it's not restrictions as such it's that they don't want to do it you know the, the, what's what's holding consumers back from spending or employees going from going back to work is because they think it's too dangerous for them and for their loved ones and and i think uh a, a, yeah the communication strategy from the government hasn't really embrace that it's it's been you know too quick to try and trumpet progress towards easing restrictions and it's looked as if it's got half an eye on the economy which i think is you know un- entirely understandable but can actually be counterproductive so i think i think the comms has been poor um it is difficult i mean i think you know i i don't i don't sort of criticizing for the oh yeah you can do x but you can't do y isn't that absurd i think as you move from a stay at home message to you can do some things you know inevitably inevitably you have to draw some lines and it's always going to be a bit arbitrary as to what falls on one side of a line or otherwise but I, i just don't think there's been the sort of sense of of purpose if you like and determination that has built the trust that was necessary
0: Ian, one of the reasons why lockdown wasn't imposed earlier was uh, what turned out to be a kind of, I think, faulty assumption that the public just wouldn't go along with it. Hmm. Um, but the relocking is going to be very different from that initial lockdown, that sense of kind of sort of urgency and novelty will have gone, um, more a sense of fatigue. Do you think, is there enough goodwill, uh, collective goodwill left for people to willingly comply with new instructions to get back indoors you know, after the grand reopening?
1: You see, the thing is, I don't think that people locked down really because of goodwill. There was two things happening at the same time, right? One of them was fear and anxiety. Yes, around your own life, but also, you know, around the life of your loved ones and people that you know, especially, you know, people think about their parents. And whatever. And the other one was that sense of sort of solidarity um, and sort of togetherness that you, that you got in that first lockdown, which is obviously sort of typified, you know, by the clapping for carers and, and things like that. And that second part, I think has gone. And it's not just, I mean, partly that would have happened anyway, right? From the, from the end of the lockdown, but, but really that, that died with Dominic Cummings, right? That died with that moment of, okay, well, we're, we're not in this together. Um, The first part won't have gone. So where people still feel that they need to do this because it's the way of keeping themselves and their loved ones safe and that they feel that, you know, they can protect their broader community. I I still think that they're ultimately going to do that. And to be honest, for most of like my friends, you know, and I've got friends in Australia right now who are going back into lockdown, same sort of a couple of other countries. And it's odd. I mean, they are doing it. They're they're doing it just the way they did it before. It's just that they're sort of doing it in a more workmanlike. You can already, by the manner in which they're talking about it, you can already hear it becoming just a part of the way in which you live life. So I suspect that people will still follow it when it, you know, when it, if, but probably let's face it, when it happens to us again. So does the government have to push
0: harder the message um, not contained in the new slogan, hands, face, space? Much, much though I love it.
2: Um, (laughs) It's the beans means (laughs) Heinz. I
0: think it's named like a rave for the under 10s. But that doesn't get across, but it's the idea that, and it is quite a difficult idea, that if you want X, then you might have to, you know, lose Y. And there's this kind of talk about, you know, pubs, pubs closing and things like you know places like that in order for schools to reopen um thus unfortunately creating a new divide of pub people and school people um yeah. do you know is that just something that because it's, it's not something that people want to hear once they've been given something back they don't want to have it taken away particularly if it's to allow something else that perhaps might not affect their life you know t- to reopen is that one of those sort of those kind of tough honest messages that the government needs to be pushing
1: a bit harder you know i honestly i I don't want to sound like i'm too upbeat about humanity or the sense of the british public on this podcast because generally speaking i have very low views on all of these things but in this case you really do feel like if you were just to say to people look these are the trade-offs this is the situation this is where we are this is what needs to happen i do think people would be receptive towards those messages but at the moment the problem goes a couple of steps back from that which is it's quite hard to get a sort of Tonal message from the government. At certain points, you hear what the message is for each individual statement. You hear it's, "Look, we've got to get the economy going again. These sandwich shops are going to go out of business unless you go to work." And that makes its own kind of sense, whether you agree with it or not. At other times, we're going to have to lock down this area right now because we don't want there to get be a second wave. And that makes a kind of sense, whether you agree with it or not. What you don't get is a sense that there's any kind of cohesion to that sort of message. So you get this sort of quite deranged message from the government of at the same time go out but also it might be coming back and we're going to have to look and it's very hard to know as an individual how you're supposed to navigate that or what the general message is let alone the point that they want to get a broader idea of you know we're going to tell you you're going to lose this but gain that that seems a degree of complexity beyond the failures that they're already making at this more basic level.
0: Uh, David, before we move on, I have to ask, considering the sort of anecdotally and statistically, it's shown that, that, that the Cummings affair, um, you know, really did dent uh, people's sense of sort of solidarity and, and willingness to comply. Um, do, you th- do you think he should, have, uh, he should have been forced to go?
3: Uh, yes, I do. I mean, I suppose, yeah, people might say, "Well, I would say that, wouldn't I?" But, but I do think <laughs> that it, uh, and I would, but I do think it really damaged the the credibility of the government's position. I think it, uh, you did, yeah. There was a real sense that trust went at that point and you know e- e- even as a even as an ex-mp i was being bombarded with former constituents uh emailing me saying you should go and you know i know my successor got them vast numbers of emails on it so i think there was a lot of anger about mm. it and i think the government have, have of you know, it, it, it it moved the whole thing on to another stage whereas previously there was a real rally around the flag and yeah you know, let's give the government the benefit of the doubt and we want them to succeed and they're doing their best um it, it immediately made the whole environment much more contentious mm. and that's not what you want as a government i mean you know you you want to be able to and you need to benefit from from that sort of sense of goodwill lasting for as long as possible, given the very mm-hmm. difficult choices that a government faces.
0: Next up, Boris Johnson's aptly named Dissolution Honours sleeked out late on Friday and caused immediate consternation for its apparent cronyism. There were seats in the laws for faithful Brexiters Kate Hoey and Gisela Stewart, space for Johnson's brother Joe and Theresa May's husband Philip for unspecified political services, a lordship <laughs> for evening standard owner Evgeny Lebedev, and a place for former revolutionary communist turned breaks to Claire Fox of the Spiked Expanded Cinematic Universe. <laughs> As a result, calls for reform of the Lords are now louder than they've been in years. But are the people in government right now the ones we want doing the reforming? Uh, Ian, so there were thirty-six new appointments to the Lords on Friday, bringing the total number to eight hundred and thirty-six uh, members. What were the? Um, I mentioned some. What were the highlights and lowlights for you?
1: oh It's not, I mean, it's mostly lowlights. there was In terms of the highlights, I suppose, I mean, there's, there was a bridge built with the sort of Tory moderates, um sort of purged from the party last year. So, you know, stuff for like Ken Clark and Ruth Davidson, Philip Hammond, Ed, Ed um There was, and then the low light, I mean, the low, where do you even want to fucking start, you know? I mean, so the Labour Brexiters, you know, to, to a person, you know, Kate Hoey, Frankfield, that kind of person will give them something. The really, the sort of services to Brexit, Brigade, you know, Claire Falk, I mean, Ian Botham is the, just the most extraordinary thing. And it's not like there was even any attempt to be like, oh, for services to cricket. You know, I mean, it was just like quite clearly, it's just like, oh, well done, man, you're on the team. And then you, and then, but then you get like the real filth, which, what you just mentioned. I mean, the Philip May, Joe Johnson stuff, that is like proper Rotten Burroughs territory. Like that is just, uh, you know, you can't, you cannot stand... And say to any other country, you know, talk about corruption or, or you know, giving jobs to your brother. When you, you just can't, you can't say any of that shit anymore. We have absolutely no moral standing to say if this is the kind of system that we're using in this country. Aisha, a, I must
0: confess this is not lodged in my memory, and I did have to look it up. But Ed Miliband was keen on Lords reform for a while uh, when you were working for him, but uh, clashed with Nick Clegg over the need for a referendum. Nothing sort of came of, of that proposed reform. What, what went wrong, and is it, is it what always goes wrong with cause Lord's reform? because the people are always trying to do it, and it never seems to happen?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things which it's a bit like sort of you know electoral reform generally, like lots of progressive people talk about it un- until they become party leader, and then it becomes a very, very <laughs> difficult thing to do. And um, you know, when I certainly worked for um, labor leaders, you do not know the amount of time that the leader of the opposition or the Prime Minister's office will get lobbied by hundreds and hundreds of people wanting to be on that coveted Lords list. Mm. So everybody you know, no matter how virtuous and pure you are, it's an important tool for you to have. It does allow you to have leverage over people. Um, patronage is an incredibly sort of, you know, uh, powerful thing to to have. So I think, I I mean, I, I agree a lot of this list is just like, oh my God. But we have to be like honest about the fact that leaders of all political stripes have used their patronage with the Lords to their advantage. They've used it mm-hmm. to get political funding, they've used it to get sort of, you know, the kind of right kind of people on their side they've dangled the prospects of getting into the Lords to to, to prominent business people, I mean even under Gordon Brown we had, you know Sir Digby Jones, Sir Alan Sugar both of whom now absolutely slag off the Labour Party, like all stuff. <laughs> you know, so it didn't even work to our like advantage, and you know, even Ed Miliband as much as he was keen to sort of do Lord reforms, he still stuffed it with, with lots of people who he had just had to promise as, as a favour, I mean, actually, I will confess. At one point, um, there was a bit of a row because my old boss, Harriet Harman, wanted me to go into the the Lords, and there wasn't space. There was lots of sort of other people that were deemed to, you know, so it's it is used as a it's used as a, a sort of a bit of a you know, it's a game for for power and who you reward, who's been loyal to you. And I do think the time has come to um, change it. Now, I'm not against the Lords to say. I think actually there's some brilliant people in the Lords. I think people from all sides of politics have gone into the Lords. They've, they're brilliant at doing that very detailed work of scrutiny, going through pieces of legislation line by line which sometimes just doesn't happen in the heat of the of the commons so I'm not one of these people who's like oh everyone in the lords is like awful and terrible but so many people go into the lords and don't do a lot of work they use the title to sort of embellish their other portfolio career so I think we should keep the lords but I think we should reform it so that we have expertise and still have people that have you know contributed in politics not just in the commons people from local government have got a huge amount of expertise to contribute tribute you know the Lord should be full of people from not just you know central government but local government charities but we do have to stop it being so crony and make it more about actual I think public policy expertise.
0: Well, I don't want to speak uh, too soon about Lord Botham's dedication to scrutinizing policy um, <laughs> oh, let's give yeah. him, let's give him a chance um can
2: can I just say I've got can I say we could? I've got a really good Ian Botham story, which is I used to do back in the olden days where we were allowed to go out and meet people, I used to do a lot of after dinner speaking and I'd quite often turn up to quite kind of male dominated sort of dinners, like the sort of, you know, engineering dinners or whatever. And one time I turned up at this place and there was literally just all men, me, and I, they were like, are you, are you in the right place? And I said, Yeah, I'm. <laughs> they were like, Are you here to serve drinks? Like, there's, you, oh, wow. like, you know, like. And then I was like, No, no, I'm actually the after dinner speaker. And this guy, you've never seen a man look so crestfallen. <laughs> 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 he said, What? I said, Yeah, I'm here to do the after dinner speak. And he looked like he was about to burst out crying. He went, We were promised Ian both. <laughs> 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 I know.
0: Oh. Uh. Well, their loss is the a second chamber's gain. <laughs> David, given the government's got such a large commons majority, um, will these new break-to-peers um, have much meaningful impact on policy, obviously compared to, to the last session where the Lords did have a lot of power?
3: Uh, probably not. I, I think this is more about an exercise of, of patronage. Uh, I mean, the the, the Lords is you know pretty pro-european and, and that's where the you know, that's where the numbers are and you know i think the government might argue that this is a slight rebalancing back to reflect uh national public opinion but it's still going to be a pretty pro-european chamber but as we saw in the last parliament yeah you know, in the end they, they'll always defer to what the house of commons says and mm. and, and so yeah you know, the p- precise makeup of of the house of lords doesn't matter that much, or at least it didn't matter very much in all the Brexit discussions that we
0: had in recent years. Well, the great, um, obviously, the in, great insult of the populist era is uh, unelected. But there are uh, there are not everybody who might be uh, able to kind of do something good in government um, has the ability to sort of go out and campaign and, and win elections. And some of the people in Lords, you know, they've obviously had long experience in in other careers. Do you think that there is a if if there was a you know if a proposal to make the entire upper chamber uh, elected would that do you think that something would be lost there?
3: Yes, I do. I mean, there's, there's, you can't. You know, if you started with a blank sheet of paper, you wouldn't have the system that you you have. Can you, in truth, intellectually justify an unelected second chamber? It's it's a real struggle it does it doesn't work in in theory to some extent it can work in practice uh and yeah there are a lot of people in the house of lords uh who very often had distinguished careers elsewhere who bring a level of expertise and knowledge that should be respected and and you know it is it is useful to have them as part of the system scrutinizing revising but ultimately not undermining the the, the principal elected chamber so I, I i'm you know i personally you know find you know aspects of of this is clearly absurd but um you know i i, I think the idea of, of focusing on this for any any government uh, you know on, on lord's reform it quickly becomes very very difficult uh and you know for all the reasons that Aisha has pointed out, Uh, and also it does. You know, as a revising chamber, it does do some really useful work.
0: Now, Ian, it's not fair to say that Claire Fox doesn't have firm principles because she has refused to apologise for her role in endorsing IRA violence (laughs) and uh, war crimes denial. But on the Lords, uh, her justification for joining a body that she opposes is she plans to criticise it from the inside. Do you think? Do you buy the idea that you can sort of oppose the Lords, but join the Lords and just go, well, while it's here, I will join it and, and, I don't know, undermine it from within?
1: Yeah. I mean, there are definitely circumstances in which you could do that. Um, I think the Green Party, I haven't checked. I mean, Jenny Jones uh, from the Green Party is in the House of Lords and I haven't checked what Green Party policy is, but I'd I'd be willing to bet that it's to reform the House of Lords and she would have entered on that basis, I think. So, of course, you can enter into places... With an idea of reforming or or, or even destroying them, and to, and to be fair to Claire Fox, I mean she did she was an MEP, you know, this time last year, and she she clearly didn't harbour any good feelings about that parliament. Um, so it's there. I mean, the only really, joint organisation she hates. She's like, yeah, she's she's building up quite a track record to be <laughs> honest. Like, um, do I think that's what's happening? And this is, I mean, not really. I, I I used to have a lot of time for Claire Fox, and I kind of. You know, I, I I don't agree with her on pretty much anything, but I, I used to think she was quite principled, and then, you know, she became one of just cronies, and that, that's the point at which my admiration stops, really. I don't really think in this case it's that. I think, ultimately, th- there is a reason that it works as a gift you know being able to give something to the lords is because it, it sort of gives you something to do it gives you a little bit of influence it gives you actually a fair amount of money if you want to take advantage of it i mean if you know most people don't have the option of just popping up the road for one day and then they suddenly get paid 300 quid and being able to do that pretty much any day so there are many advantages to it and i would imagine lots of that was bearing down more than the principles when that judgment was taken so if Claire Fox cannot bring it down from
0: within um what would what sort of refor- reform- i'm not sure how much this 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 issue sort of animates you um as a, as we' discovered recently you're a prince charles loving monarchist but, um, <laughs> and, and def- defender of hereditary privilege but what kind of um
1: reform uh w- would you like to see i mean look, what's been said already is true is that it does lots of the scrutiny work really quite well and you you know we have this sort of quite schizophrenic public debate about the Lords, right? Where we have this debate that we're having right now. Oh my God, how can this possibly exist? Look at how we do it. It's appalling. And then we have the other debate, which is when they reject a bill that the government has put forward, you know, as they used to do on say, like tuition fees, or if they have done on on, um, on various issues. People go, oh, I can't believe the Lords has done this. But it's actually, well, no, they, they have a pretty good record on that. So you have to think, well, what, how can we take the good bits and fix the bad bits? And it seems to me, I've said this before, I am still the cheerleader for uh, Jack Straw's uh, white paper on this many, oh, Jesus Christ, decades ago now but that ultimately your job is to give it enough democratic legitimacy that it has standing and then try to pack it through the people with specialism who can actually do the scrutiny function. And instinctively I would say if you were to go 51% elected on proportional representation, so you're not messing around with any sort of constituent stuff and then have a board that just picks, you know, why not have people who know what it is doing TV production the next time you have some kind of bill affecting the media go there, why not have scientists and even sports people and economists, and actually managed to combine the democratic legitimacy with the expertise. And actually, when you, if you were to actually do that, I know it's easier to say starting from a blank piece of paper than it is, as it would be going through the meat grinder of politics. But actually, the opportunities there become quite exciting, and we just need a party that would be brave enough to do it.
0: I think also there should be room for music journalists stroke podcasters. <laughs> just saying, I think
1: that would a lot a lot
0: to bring to the nation. Um, Aisha, finally... Uh, you must have seen so many sort of different plans uh, for reform, you know. Both, both as a kind of working of the Labour Party and as a journalist, is is would you is your sort of preferred solution something like Ian's that kind of that kind of split? Keir Starmer's got one that involves region regional bodies.
2: I mean, I think a sort of, funny, very Blair, I think a third (laughs) wave and uh, Keirs would be quite good. No, I do do think, I mean, I probably think 51 is probably too low. I think you want to be more into, I think, kind of 60 to 70%, um, some kind of elected. I do think the regions are very, very, very important. I mean, if, if the one lesson that we take away from the whole Brexit fiasco and particularly if if we look now at what's happening with Scotland and sort of rising sort of desire for Welsh separatism and more federalism across the United Kingdom there is a really important point to not just pack it full of people from who can as Ian said just like live quite near Westminster and like pop in and collect their £300 have some by the way the Lord's Tea Room is the best they do the best toasted tea cakes so like that's (laughs) my main like like desire to get that's why i wanted to get into the lords really bad <laughs> <laughs> like, i to get really like be really fat and happy and just eat sea cakes and, get and just make really pompous speeches and like be really geek out over legislation which is what i would love to do like that who would not love that basically but um but i do i i hope there is some way of, of making some i mean obviously it's not going to happen now, I think what's sad about what has happened, and again, I just you know, I want to try and be judicious because it isn't just Boris Johnson that's done this, but the, way, the kind of brazenness of it has really cast a stain over the Lords. And I do think they do some, they do some brilliant, brilliant work. When I was putting the Equality Act through, um, there was so much detail. It was like a thicket of, 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 of legislation that we needed to kind of go through and make sure it was properly drafted. And they were amazing, like the expertise. And also the good Lords have got time They've got real time um, and 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 an intellectual bandwidth to think about these things, and I think that is really important. We don't we don't do enough sort of deep thinking in politics. So I think to sort of throw that mm. out would be a real shame.
0: Finally, let's look to the future, more specifically the future of conservatism. Since Boris Johnson came to power just over a year ago, British politics has undergone a seismic realignment. His landslide election victory in 2019 was only made possible by winning over economically left, socially right voters in the red wall, a shift that could define the Conservative Party moving forward, not least because of Rishi Sunak's emergency big state interventions during the pandemic. But how can the party of free marketeers and thatch rights reconcile itself to becoming the party of big government? David, you recently wrote an article about the future of the party, uh, fearing that it was sort of lost for small state free marketeers and one nation social liberals, and that it was sort of too late uh, to turn back. Why do you, I mean, that's quite, that's quite a a strong statement why do you think that's the case
3: i think what we're seeing in politics um in the uk but also elsewhere is 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 moving on from a a debate which is about economic policy to some extent economic class and is much more cultural it's much more about identity politics and brexit was part of this but it's as much a, a a symptom as a cause and what i think the Conservative Party uh, did last year, and I and I think Dominic Cummings in particular holds this view, is to say that we've got to unambiguously appeal to one side of the debate in this country. Of course, if we can win over the support of those who are on the other side, then that's all well and good. But fundamentally, we've got to have a kind of clear message to sort of one side of, of the big divide in in, in politics. And the Conservatives did that very clearly, and they won a majority as a consequence. The Labour Party didn't have as much clarity in terms of their position. But if that is the analysis, and you then look at the electoral map and say, where are the swing voters in the swing seats? Well, those those swing voters, there have been a couple of studies uh, on this recently, Yeah, they do hold economically left-wing views. They hold, uh, whether you call them social social authoritarian or conservative or nationalistic or however you want to call it, you know, that that's where they are on, 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 on those issues. And it, seems to me that the, the Conservative Party there is, faces a quite strong electoral logic to keep going down the route that they've started, continue to appeal to those swing voters and the swing seats that they have. And if you represent a red wall seat, that's certainly going to be what you want. Um, and and keep going in that direction, which moves it towards more populist politics. Um, and also it moves you away from the traditional conservative economic positions, fiscally conservative, you know, wanting to balance the books, uh, wanting to control public spending pretty tightly, arguing that the market is an efficient mechanism for allocating resources and, you know, wary of government intervening and picking winners and so on. And, And the arguments that Margaret Thatcher made in the in, in the 1980s about the nature of the economy sent, essentially go out the window because that's not what will appeal to your new electorate and, and therefore this is not just a sort of short term moment in response to COVID or even in response to Brexit You know, a more fundamental realignment in British politics is, is applying uh, that the leadership of the Conservative Party can see that that is happening and in such circumstances the electrical the electorally logical thing to do is to is you know to is, is to offer um, you know a clear agenda which appeals to those voters.
0: My impression is that Johnson sort of observes uh, where things are going and kind of uh, tacks in in that direction. Is, do you think there's such a thing? I mean, you've obviously sort of worked with him. Is there such a thing as Johnsonism? Uh, and if so, what is it beyond winning?
3: I, I don't I don't in truth think there is much beyond that i mean i think he's 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 in favor of of you know pleasing people he's in favor of, you know we we're talking earlier in the context of covid he's in favor of having good news um he's you know if people say it would be terrible if um we would cut spending so oh, no no absolutely we no more austerity and uh, uh, you know are we in are we in favor of lower taxes oh yeah lower taxes you know good you know get people entrepreneurial and and, and so on and and um what about sort of you know borrowing well we, we obviously don't want to borrow you know too much so you, you in the end you you have to you have to make some choices and and uh, i mean it's not it's you know not uh, unheard of for politicians not to want to make those difficult choices for as long as possible but in in the end um you know i i, I when he has going to have to make some tougher choices and this will apply in the brexit negotiations that apply to economic policy um i think you know, the, the the advice that he will be getting from Dominic Cummings, I suspect, will be, you know, bear in mind who the key electorate is here, who are the people that determined the last general election results. They are the swing voters in the swing seats in the which are in the red wall, and they are economically fairly left-wing, and they are culturally quite conservative, they're quite sort of nationalist in their outlook. Uh, and you 've got to appeal to them and and when it comes to to making those difficult choices, then then Boris Johnson will i think have to go that way because that's
0: that 's the way that enables him to win when well, in any party different factions are dominant so different tendencies are dominant at different times, but it was quite sort of it was, it was quite shocking when you and twenty other MPs lost the whip um, and there was a kind of new sort of pledge of of allegiance to brexit for the um, for anyone standing in December. Do you think the party can, can still be described as a broad church, or has there been something kind of drastically narrowing that's happened?
3: Oh, it, it has narrowed clearly. I mean, you, look, you could argue that you know it's it, it at the same t- in a different direction. It has broadened to incorporate the the red wall voters, but but that—I mean—I think what the what it was about is you go back to the European uh, parliamentary elections last year. In, in, in May where the Labour Party and the Conservative Party both did dismally because they were trying to appeal to both sides of of a debate. Uh, and in fact, people wanted to vote for a clear position, whether that was the Brexit Party or whether it was the Liberal Democrats. Uh, and I think that the, the, the Cummings analysis, if you like, is you know, we have got to be clearly on one side uh, of this debate. And if you have got Conservative MPs who clearly belong on the other side of that debate... Then you, you need to get rid of them because they are blurring your message. They are, you know, they are stopping you having the clarity you need to make this a Brexit election. And so, I mean, obviously, I wasn't terribly enthusiastic about the withdrawal of the whip for me and twenty others, um, but I could completely see the electoral logic for it, and 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 indeed. You know, I, I think that move helped the Conservative Party win a majority in, in in December. You know, because it provided them with that clarity. So yes, you know, it, it, it is a narrowing, but with that narrowness becomes greater clarity. And and certainly in terms of the twenty nineteen general election, that clarity helped them enormously.
0: Ian, David's sort of analysis there of kind of the, the what we call Johnson's brand of conservatism perhaps has less to do with with Johnson than just these other kind of larger trends do you think therefore that it could just that this would just sort of outlast johnson himself it's, an, it's just not one of those things that's attached to one particular leader
1: yeah I, to be honest i don't think johnson is the most important thing i think ultimately for the next few years it is cummings because and that I mean, that, and that I thought all of that analysis was was spot on. And ultimately, when we start getting close to another election, and possibly before that, <clears throat> I do suspect that we will see an attempt to try and find these really core cultural dividing lines—the culture war stuff, these hinge issues that you can get people to vote on the basis of. So the, the main variable then becomes: what do the opponents do? So you look at not just Keir Starmer, but also what are the liberal Democrats doing? You know, what are even the SNP doing? Um, What are sort of people who are generally quite free market, who are quite right wing on economics, who are quite sort of fiscally conservative, but are socially liberals do? What do they do? And if they go in for the culture war, if for those hinge issues, we're probably going to see a repeat of what has already happened to us. But it's actually the thing is, and this is the bit that sort of gives me a bit more hope, is it's quite hard to do that. Right. Like I mean, you you in, in the US, you sometimes see this attempt made on sort of trans issues, which would be very effective if you get everyone to talk about it. But okay. most people don't talk about it. The thing is, when it was Brexit, you had a referendum. And then not only did you have a referendum, but you had such a big issue of extraction that it would take up the full spectrum of what anyone could talk about for several years. So there it was very easy to just root it down, to root the whole political debate down on that issue. Now it's harder to see how you go about doing that. You know, do you start a debate about the death penalty or something like that? Well, Poland managed to do it with LGBTQ issues, didn't it? The Poland always managed to confect a kind of divide that wasn't really there. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about that is they tried other things. I mean, they tried um, doing it over Islam. They tried doing it about Muslims. Just, just weren't enough Muslims in Poland for them to be able to make that an issue. So then they went, okay, well we can do it on, we can do it on on LGBT. So you, you, I think you will see that attempt. You'll see it more and more, but, COVID has demonstrated to us, it's quite hard to get it out. At the moment, They can't, it's very hard to get that kind of debate out. And as soon as it's not a culture war debate, politics returns to an area that is more sane. It's ultimately about how competent are you? Are you delivering on the things you said you would do? Are you keeping the public safe? Are you keeping the nation secure? And on that, it's a much, much weaker proposition.
0: Aisha, Keir Starmer is more competent and popular than his predecessor so far. Um, and, and it's in times of trouble, Johnson falls back on attacking either Jeremy Corbyn or Remainers, even if they're nothing to do with the subject at hand. Um, I mean, the government's ratings are, they are still, Tories are still ahead of Labour. Um, but do you feel that he has much sort of else in the tank that when he makes these, these sort of somewhat sort of outdated attacks, do, do they seem a little desperate?
2: Well, it depends who's listening, doesn't it, to, to somebody like me and somebody with my politics. I think they do sound um, sort of desperate, but they they will have been focus grouped and they will have been found to be quite effective. And I think I slightly disagree with what um, Ian said. I think this culture war stuff is really, really important. And I think it's pretty ignoble, but it has really made a difference in um, British politics. And I I saw it coming down the track. I've seen it coming down the track for a long, long time. I mean, even when, you know, Ed Miliband was was leader and I was working for, for him. I think what progressive liberals have always tried to do is just say that competence is everything and have a very reasonable discussion about the economy. And what we have failed to kind of factor in is how people feel and the emotional side of politics and the the cultural stuff which of course has now exploded into this culture war and i i sort of disagree i think this stuff is easy to get up i mean just look at how quickly the black lives matter stuff just you know turned into some really nasty fight where people gave people permission to just sort of be hugely racist again, and, and and just start a big, 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 massive kind of them and us, a very, very big divide. And there was a really interesting report out from, I think, UK in a changing EU recently. And they found that the public, the general public, is actually more socially conservative than the majority of conservative MPs. So when Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson choose and, and even Manira Mirza you know had this thing saying let's do the war and the walk. that is actually very effective for them
0: so finally we, I mean we've been talking about all this cultural stuff but we are you know there's a possible no deal Brexit there's a huge uh, Covid recession there's, there's climate change there's the long term economic problems, some of which haven't been dealt with um, The dominant tone of conservative thought, as I see it at the moment, seems to be sort of trolling the left uh, in terms of kind of like the pundits and the the think tanks. Which sort of conservative thinkers or or politicians or writers do you think have, you know, someone like you who's been in the party for a long time, actually has a sort of serious vision for the future, which doesn't just involve kind of winding up liberals?
3: It's a very good question. I'm not sure that... um there's anyone out there who is sort of particularly sort of setting out where the Conservative Party goes and its its, its choices. I mean I, I think you know they're they're particularly drawn in a particular direction. And although I agree with Ian's point about, you know, the left can avoid the culture wars and I think they, they should as much as possible, you've still got the issue of Brexit. And I don't think Brexit disappears As an issue in the next few years, yeah, we'll have to live with the consequences of Brexit. What does that actually mean? And it's going to be, you know, if if it turns out not to be a huge success, and you know, I, I'm sceptical that it will. But if it turns out not to be a huge success, you know, the pressure on Keir Starmer, for example, to say that, well, you know, what is going to be our future relationship with the European Union? Are we going to have a closer relationship? And, it, uh, and, and there's a logic for doing that, and his supporters will want him to do that, at which point Dominic Cummings and the Conservative Party will want to fight that same fight and i think there's a you know the i think one of the most interesting questions in in british politics in the next few years is you know how how are labor going to respond to brexit you know where are they going to go are they just going to want to sort of close down all those issues and just you know be a more left-wing party um on, on and fight on economics you know on, a, on more left-wing economics or are they going to perhaps embrace that that realignment in British politics, but that probably requires them to, to, to significantly moderate their economic pitch, so that they can pick up mm. some of those disillusioned, you know, liberal, moderate, centrist conservatives who, who fear the party's taken the wrong turn.
0: We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. Aisha, what is your great distraction this week?
2: I've just finished watching Mrs. America, which is just absolutely brilliant. I've just been so taken with it, I think. Oh, so good, so good. So I recommend every – and also what's been great is that it's made me read up about all the history around that time, and there's sort of quite a few contested versions of what actually happened with the the ERA, speaking of the culture wars, and there's quite a lot of stuff which is very um, uh, sort of apt for what's happening now.
0: Yes, the Houston episode in particular is just like the best thing I've seen all year.
3: Uh, David? Uh, well, i the last week or so, I've been watching The Plot Against America, the, the uh, adaptation of Philip Roth's novel. Um, I'd like to think that that's definitely an escape. Um, but, uh, but uh, uh, you know, of a country slipping in the direction of. Anyway, but once uh, you to carry the parallel very far. But, uh, tremendous, I thought. Terrific. I'd uh, confess I'd not read the, the, the novel, but um, I thought it was a, a tremendous dramatization. Terrific.
1: Ian? uh bury tomorrow have got a new album out um called cannibal they are fucking metal like they are it's like basically it's like if you're walking down the street and this massive dog just fucking comes at you and just buries you in the fucking ground and smashes the shit out of you but in a good way it is metal as fuck and extremely satisfying strongly recommend it Wonderful. Um, Well, I've been, uh,
0: I started watching Jed Mercurio's pre-line of duty medical drama Bodies, which is on Amazon Prime, which is incredibly gruesome and stressful and and because I realised I didn't, I didn't know much about how hospitals worked I started reading Henry Marsh's uh, memoir Do No Harm he's a brain surgeon it's mm-hmm. an unbelievably good book just extraordinarily sort of moving and insightful um, but now it, it turns out that all I I just dream of surgical mishaps where somebody oh, no. accidentally snips the brain stem <laughs> somebody just goes horrib- horribly wrong and, and babies being like res, you know resuscitated and all that so I don't know it's certainly a distraction it's a distraction from food. <laughs> Feeling good. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, it's helped my hypochondria no end.
2: Yeah, and your insomnia. <laughs> yeah.
0: And uh, that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to our panel, David Gork. Thank you. Aisha Hazarika.
2: Thank you very much. And
0: Ian Dunt. Cheers, mate. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform, Patreon, to see our Twitter or Facebook, or search Patreon bunker podcast if you back us you'll get a shout out on the show and here are some now
1: hello and many thanks from me to Paul Barnes David Trott Matthew Lagden Tom Cleaver and Gavin Hogg
2: and thank you very much and best wishes from me too to Keith Tarrant, Darren Davali Louisa Llewellyn Jan Kapinski and David Cleason
0: and finally thanks from me to Phil Walker Tim and Rod Thorpe, Matthew Ames, and Lucien Kenny. Stay safe, we'll see you next week. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Aisha Hazarika. Audio production was by me,
3: Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison, and the assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.